Flair and this is Founder Coffee. Every two weeks I have coffee with a different founder. We discuss life, passions, learnings in an intimate talk, getting to know the person behind the company. For this sixth episode, I had a chat with Des Trainer, co-founder of Intercom, the unicorn messaging company. Over the years, Des has been building marketing and product at Intercom. He is an important driving force behind many of their innovations and an inspiration to many fellow startup founders. Des and I talk about how to build great products, his plans with Intercom, personal passions, and what he'd change if he did it all over again. Welcome to Founder Coffee. Hi, Des. Uh, it's great to have you on Founder Coffee. It's cool to be here. Thank you. Congratulations on your uh, recent round of uh, 125 million again. Yeah, it was, thanks very much. I mean, it's it's always weird to take congratulations specifically for like you know for raising money. At the end of the day, it's a financial event, but um, but I think it's always indicative of some greater progress the company's making. So as a result, you know, I take the congratulations, but it's 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 weird to celebrate like what was ultimately a illegal transaction. An illegal transaction? No, I said a legal transaction. <laughs> legal transaction. Oh, wow. oh sorry. Uh, but you're officially like uh, a unicorn now, so you must celebrate this milestone. Or is this something that you don't like do in Intercom? Uh, I think we get much more excited to celebrate things like uh, you know, like uh, any sort of significant progress the product mm -hmm. might, the product might make. Um, uh, certain customer engagement numbers or customer growth numbers. It's it's not really like the valuation of the company is like is a proxy for a lot of other things. Yeah. In itself, the thing that we really get excited about. You'll see a lot more enthusiasm this year when we re release some great product work, uh, or yeah. when we hit some some like or when the products that we release hit some sort of usage uh, that we're really happy with. I think that's the stuff that we've always kind of focused on, and we know that like the valuations and all that. It all kind of is the trailing indicator of like greater work that's happening. Yeah, yeah, that makes that makes total sense. Like in the last, uh, I think it's five years, or how long are you on Intercom? I guess so. We incorporated in August two thousand eleven, so we'll be seven oh. years in August. Seven years. Uh, for those who missed uh, all your work in the last seven years, what do you guys exactly do? We help businesses talk to customers, and customers talk to businesses. So we're like a customer messaging platform. Um, but if, if you're an internet business and you have customers and you'd like to speak with them or you'd like to make it easy for them to speak with you, Intercom is the tool. You've probably already used it. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, we use Intercom at Salesflare to manage uh, everything from uh, the onboarding of our customers with automated emails, follow up with uh, automated chat messages, the whole inbox, like who says what to signing it to, uh, to everyone. Uh, and, and, and actually also the... Um, the 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 help pages we yeah, use the, the whole product the, beginning to end that's awesome yeah. so you use literally everything we make we use uh, well at least all the i don't know how you call it modules yeah that's um, right. all, the, all the products yeah yeah all the products uh maybe not all to the to their fullest extent i i hope but but i maybe i miss some things um yeah and we need to do better there making it easier for people to get as much value as possible as quickly as possible yeah, about about that. Uh, just just some some general wondering on my side. Your product is super simple when you first start using it, uh, and still has a lot of depth. Uh, how do you deal with that? It's a it's a real tricky one for us because like um, as you kind of grow your product, the power like 
it, the product gets more powerful, but I, I've come to the conclusion that another word for powerful is complex. And, yeah. <laughs> um, and you know, we can't hit you with all the power up front because uh, you will like, you know, if, if, if the first step in your intercom onboarding is now create a messaging campaign for longitudinal communications with your entire user base, <laughs> will, will like genuinely, like, they'll just never get past that step. So we kind of like, we try to keep like some sort of like iceberg like property where it's like the first few steps should be simple and they should like demonstrate like value early. Um, we, we know that like that to, to realize the full potential, you have to actually get more, uh, you have to embrace the product more and more and commit more time to it. The thing we often look for is um, like when you're generally designing an onboarding program, you try to find things that are basically quick. Uh, and by quick, I really mean in software, there's two things that take time. There's like a, there's what I call like task time, which is like, let's say if it's an email client, task time is when you're actually writing the email. So mm -hmm. like, is in you're thinking about what you want to say and who needs to hear it. And then there's tool time and tool time is when like you're clicking compose and you're entering your, like your recipients and stuff like that. And yeah. there are two different ways to think about it. And, uh, and I think, um, something can be easy to do, but can still take a long, long time to do it. So let's say, for example, writing an article on Medium. It's a very easy thing to do, but if Medium's first step is, and now write an article, you might still spend six hours stuck on that step, right? Uh, yeah. And it's nothing to do with the UI. So I think when you're trying to designing onboarding, you're looking for things that are both quick to do, but also don't have a significant amount of task time either. So you kind of like, you know, it kind of rules out things like designing an onboarding campaign. It might be as simple as let's configure your, the first message you say to people on your website. It's a single message. It should be two sentences or less. You know, that's something that people can do quick enough and it'll probably start showing value, you know, within the same, within the same day or within the same hour if you have a busy website. So that's kind of where we try to force people to, to do. And as a result, it kind of creates this impression of it being simple, but I like simple is good. But we just, we don't want, you know, simple is good at one end of the market. But I think at some point, you know, people, you know, they don't want simplicity. They want power. And in fact, they need power. And it's rare that you can see simplicity and power like in the same product. Uh, usually yeah. when, you know, when, when that is the case, something else is being hidden somewhere else. Yeah, no, exactly. That's that's what I was aiming at. But, but it seems that you you not only make the the time to the, the, the task you were saying, uh, but, but also you, you, bring a lot of focus by kind of unbundling the product in different uh, products uh, and then focusing on this one thing that is going to do it first. Uh, is that, is that a, is a conscious thing? Uh, it was a conscious thing. I guess when we first launched Intercom, it was just one thing. And I mm -hmm. think it made sense when our customers were typically very small startups. And the trait that's interesting with very small startups is that like everyone kind of does everything. Like, yeah. so I have, you know, if you're selling like a project management tool, your developer might also be your product manager and might also be your graphic designer and your, and like your CEO, they could all be the same person. Mm -hmm. On the customers facing side of things for Intercom, what we found early on with our initial customers was that the same person who does marketing does customer support and might also be the CEO and the product manager. And, uh, and as a result, selling this one simple solution that does everything actually made a lot of sense. Yeah. However, as companies grow up, what happens is the initial founding team kind of unbundles itself into a set of teams. And you might have a marketing team and a support team and a sales team and a product team. And then they start looking for their own tooling or their own uh, software. So what we, what we decided to do when we realized this was happening was 
to break the product into like into pieces where we could tailor every solution to match the exact target sort of recipient. And what was interesting about that was that it was kind of like it worked in both ways. It increased our conversion rate because now if you're the head of customer support for a startup and you come along to our support tool, we're not yeah. trying to sell you marketing software. We're just talking to you about support. And when you go to sign up, we just ask you to sign up for customer support. We're not going to tell you for, for your first step, let's create a visitor auto message on your marketing site. We're not saying that because that's not relevant to support. So yeah. by doing like, by kind of breaking the product up a bit, uh, we, it kind of let us tailor exactly what it is that we need to do uh, for each of our sort of target buyers and tailor their onboarding. And in fact, all of the engagement emails and all of the, the sort of messages they'll receive, they're all specific to the use case now, which means that we can sell support to support people and sell marketing to marketing people without confusing either person. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah I know what you mean. I, I guess it's, uh, yeah, it must be, it must be good on all fronts. It must be good on the ads, it must be good on the onboarding. It's kind of a, also a land and expand strategy. You land in one department and expand to the whole company. Is that kind yeah. of what it's doing for you or? Uh, I mean, I guess it's, it's done a lot of things. Um, the clarity in marketing and the clarity and sort of positioning of the solutions has probably been the biggest thing. It is mm -hmm. also true that like that, you know, if the, they might well click into like say the uh, the onboard and engage part of intercom and, and they might say, oh, this looks cool. And from there they're given an opportunity to upgrade and purchase that solution too if they need it. And they can send that over to their, like the, whoever runs marketing for them and she or he can go ahead and, and like sort of start using that. So it does make the land and expand easier because uh, it kind of, it, we have a specific offering for each person. And obviously like it means that as they adopt more software that like, you know, that they make rational sort of purchasing considerations. Like it, it, the old world had this problem where people felt that like, if I was the customer support person, I couldn't adopt intercom without also talking to the marketing person because there's some bits in here for marketing. Whereas when we kind of isolated those concerns entirely and made those conversations, I think a lot easier. When you, when you started off with, with intercom, uh, which, which, module of these which product did you actually start off with because i i suppose you didn't start off with the whole thing in mind we kind of did but i guess we have to take a step back and sort of say like we, we built intercom to solve a problem that we had with our previous internet business mm -hmm. and that problem was that we had like thousands of users uh we had like thousands of paying customers as well we had uh you know they were geographically all over the world. They were paying us all sorts of different amounts. Some of them were on trial. Some of them were paying. Some of them had quit. And we had no good way to sort of understand what our user base was. Now, you have to bear in mind, when we started in 2011, like Stripe wasn't a thing. So everyone used like PayPal recurring subscriptions as a way to manage their, like, their uh, customer accounts. There was no, there obviously was no tools like Intercom. It wasn't possible to do things like show me all the users who haven't created a lead or haven't opened a project or assigned yeah. a task. You know, the idea that you could uh, sort of interrogate your user base based on what activities they have or haven't taken was just not popular. Uh, like, you know, Mixpanel didn't have it, like uh, Kissmetrics didn't have it. None of the tools of that era had it at all. So we, we started building a tool that would let us like see and talk to specific customers uh, within our user base. So mm -hmm. one day that might, might, might be something like, let's talk to all our paying customers. And another day it might be like, let's talk to people who haven't yet used a certain feature. So we started building this tool with a simple goal of like, see, talk and listen to customers. And that was all we really cared about. And, uh, and that, was, that was what became Intercom and it, it kind of got really popular. Um, so like the, the initial uh, idea 
you could argue it maybe was all of it. It was this like live updated CRM plus messaging tools plus, uh, you know, plus managing a shared inbox. What happened as we kind of grew up was we got more focused. So we realized, oh shit, you know, if there's going to be like 25 people in a support team uh, managing thousands of customer conversations, we better design a UI that makes that possible and yeah. routing algorithms that make that possible. And similarly, we realized that people are going to like be trying to sell through intercom or schedule meetings through intercom or uh, or like ask customers specific questions through intercom. We better make that easy to do. So we launched things like our Google Calendar integration or our operator bot or any of those things. But it's been consistently like, you know, I think we started off with this big idea and then we just kind of have had to add specificity to specific workflows along the way to make it more powerful and kind of faster. Yeah. Just, just one. What is your background exactly? Uh, like, like, wh- what is what is the story before Intercom, and how did you, how did you get there? Sure. So, well, I studied computer science originally, and then I started a PhD to learn uh, why are we so bad at teaching people how to program. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I dropped out of that PhD to become a sort of user experience designer, and I did like two years of user experience design before I met Owen, who's the CEO of Intercom. Mm-hmm. And then we ended up starting a consultancy together where we would design and build web apps for clients. And yeah. as part of doing that, we, we had a side project called Exceptional, which was an error tracking tool for Ruby on Rails uh, developers. And that was the tool, if you recall, a couple of minutes ago, and I was saying we had this product that had thousands of users, but we had no easy way to communicate with them. That was kind of where it was within Exceptional that we first felt this pain of managing a user base and speaking to a user base. And that was what ultimately led to the birth of Intercom. Yeah. So you have a, a, a quite a broad background going back from computer science to usability to kind of looking at education in, uh, in a certain way, uh, becoming yeah. a consultant, launching products, and then yeah. getting into only one product and dropping all the rest. Is that kind of a yeah. summary? or? Yeah, that's about right. Yeah. And you are based in uh, Dublin, right? That's right, yeah. And uh, how much of, of Intercom is still in Dublin today? Uh, well, um, the question kind of implies that, that we're, we're leaking away, whereas I think no. uh, we're, we're, like, we're like maybe 220 people or something like that in Dublin yeah. today. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're like, we're I think like 470 worldwide. Um, so yeah. like, though still a very, very substantial proportion, but I mean, I, I, we have five, uh, we have five offices basically and our, and our intention is to like grow all of them. Um, so I, I don't anticipate anything changing in terms of Dublin's uh, presence for yeah. the next while. It's about half now and it's gonna, gonna stay that way. Or? We'll see. I mean, it's, it kind of depends on where to come, where like, you know, what I would say is like, Almost all of our R and D uh, uh, for the last four or five years has been uh, based in Dublin. Only over, over the last year, we opened an R and D office in San Francisco, and then also an R and D office in London. Mm-hmm. And we'll kind of see where the like, where, where the sort of the needs of the business are. What what teams need to grow? What teams need need to like? What teams can stay the same size? And that will kind of dictate what, how like the sort of future head can gets distributed. Yeah. What is it exactly you do at Intercom? I, I remember last time we talked, you were on marketing and moving it back a bit to product. Is that still the, the plan? Yes, exactly. Uh, so f- starting to finish up in marketing and moving fully back to product. Yeah. What are, what are the reasons for that? 
Uh, I think it's like, as, as we've brought on more senior talent on the go-to-market side of the business, I mean, I guess two years ago, we brought on LB, who's our VP of sales, and she was mm-hmm. uh, transformative in a lot of, of how we think about going to market. And then more recently, we, um, I guess a year ago, we brought on Karen Peacock, who's our COO, and she, again, as that comes with like a wealth of experience that we just never had, or certainly I didn't have on the go-to-market side of the business. So as we've gotten more senior talent on how we sell and market intercom, uh, it, my role there has become simply like giving giving people context, letting people know why things are the way they are, what stuff should change, what stuff was really being proven to be uniquely valuable. But ultimately, I think like I started off on product in intercom, and I think that's probably still where most of my... Uh, my best abilities lie. So I think it makes sense for me to, to rejoin the product team, given the amount of software we intend to ship in the coming years. Yeah. So it's, it's more of your, your passion, the product side and the, your, or. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, what, what are kind of the high level plans you have for the next few years or what can you share there? I, I guess like what I'd say is like we want intercom what we want to like power every conversation between every internet business and every mm-hmm. uh, person. So, so like uh, every type of internet business means that we have to think about like the different verticals that we trade in, everything from like iPhone apps to games to like e-commerce to you name it, like B2B subscription, software subscription businesses, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And um, every conversation means today we do like sales marketing and support conversations, but they're obviously not the only conversations people have. And then for every person, that, that means like what are all the, different, all the different people on the planet, which means things like, like localization. Uh, we need to make sure that we work in all languages for all people in all ways. And uh, that's like that's the best way to sort of predict how Intercom will behave is just, you know, if something can help make internet business personal by connecting people with businesses to have certain types of conversations, then then it's the sort of thing that's undoubtedly we'll need to do at some point. We obviously have a specific order and a specific sort of ethos and philosophy as to what why we do things the way we do them. Yeah. But I think um I think that, you know, our plan is pretty simple beyond that. Like Yeah. So it's basically with the with the money you raise, you're gonna expand geographies, you're gonna expand use cases, you're gonna expand sectors. Uh, yeah, and I think we, we touched on a few bits and pieces about what else we'll do in our in our uh, in our funding blog post as well. Yeah, those were more um, techy things, if I remember well. It was around AI and cetera. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So you are going to lead these kind of things now in the next few years, or? Yeah, that would be the plan. I mean, we, as I said, we raised a lot of money to build a lot of product and, and obviously it's, it won't be just me leading it though. Like there's mm-hmm. a whole heap of people in Intercom, Paul Adams, Anne Montgomery, Lewis Bennett, Derek Curran. Like there's a lot of us who are responsible for uh, for significant portions of the company's future as it relates to R&D. Yeah. And, uh, and that's basically what we've been working on uh, for the lo- longest time. Mm-hmm. How, how do I have to imagine your day then in practice? Apart yeah, so in practice, I guess I start slightly late because I'm in Dublin and I want to overlap with San Francisco. Uh, mm-hmm. So I start maybe like 10, 30, 11, uh, so, so that I can finish at 7, 30, 8 maybe. Um, first half of the day is usually like uh, one-to-ones with anyone who, who I report to uh, or anyone in my org here. Uh, and then email, uh, just you know, dealing with anything that came up overnight or any sort of long-standing projects. And then... Uh, then I usually take like two to three hours each day, if possible, to sort of uh, to work on any personal uh, personal tasks that I have, like as in personal for Intercom. So mm-hmm. if there's something I'm working on, be it like a, a new angle for a product or a new idea for a feature or a new talk or a new narrative around why we're building something the way we're building it, uh, I'll try and get that in before San Francisco wakes up, which is usually around 3, 3.30. 
And then from that point onwards, then it's usually syncing with my counterparts on the go-to-market side of the business, whether that's our VP of sales or a COO, head of marketing, et cetera. It's just kind of like then connecting with all them to make sure they're all on the same page. And then once a week, I'd have like a, a pretty uh, in-depth sort of chat with our CEO, Owen, where I kind of go through everything that's top of mind for me, for me and vice versa. And um, we see if there's any way we can help each other or like any context that we need to share. Yeah. So a lot of your time is spent on communication and management. And then part of your time is still still spent on actually doing, let's say, operational things or building things. Well, I'd say like what I could, we call it maybe like individual contributor work. Yeah, I think that's yeah. necessary. I think you uh-huh. have to kind of, you, you know, I think it's both, it, you know, I think the reason it's important is like, you know, if, if your entire day is just forwarding emails from one group to another group, it's kind of more of a sign mm-hmm. of a messy organization. And it also means that like, you will inevitably end up not using the skills that you probably more uniquely have. Um, yeah. So I think that that's why like, I'm kind of comfortable to say like that we need to carve yeah. out time for me to do specific things. I would say it's not always like net new intercom activities. It could be something more, more typical, like say like uh, performance, uh, you know, like say performance analysis, getting gathering peer feedback on certain people, working out the future of the organ- organizational design for R&D or for product or any of those sort of things. That's also a part of it, which is probably like the less exciting to a lot of the listeners, but like it also needs to get done. Yeah. So you, you keep a bit of, uh, let's say, passion in the job by, by still doing actual things. Uh, yeah, I'd say passion and relevance, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Like, I, I think um, one fear I have for people who kind of turn into like long-term advisors or consultants or uh, just bloggers or whatever is that I think if you're not actually practicing the material, I think it's very easy to come up with really interesting ideas that have no bearing on reality because you've never tested them because all you ever do is write pieces or give talks about them. So yeah. I think um, I think I'm like you know I'm very wary of not becoming that sort of person. So uh, so I think it's good to actually like to be frequently in amongst the details. Yeah, you you mentioned blogging. I I know in the beginning you spend a lot of time on blogging. Do you still spend some of your time on blogging or? No, I mean, I, I wish I could, and uh, and I do need to get back to it. But um, but for right now, I probably I'm right. I'm averaging like maybe like three pieces a year. Um, I still do a bit of conference speaking because it's kind of easier to do in some senses. Um, it's it's you know the nice thing about a conference is it has like usually a sort of sense of a ticking clock. Like you have to go on stage on April twenty third and give this talk. Yeah. Uh, whereas blog posts don't usually have that. Um. So. I think, um, yeah, we, uh, you know, I, I still make time for it. And oftentimes what happens is whatever I present at a conference will then turn into a blog post. And that's usually the way it happens. So every time you're at a conference, you tell a different story or? Uh, yeah, it depends. Sometimes I'll tell the same story if the crowd's totally different. Yeah. Okay. But, but my, the question was because if you turn it into a blog post each time, I guess you cannot uh, do the exact same thing a few times. Yes, true, true, true. Yeah. You, you you mentioned uh, getting to work at ten thirty, correct? Yeah. Uh, what what do you do before? Is that is that sleeping or? The... Oh, I I usually exercise if possible. Um, so I'll go to the gym or I'll you know have breakfast and go for a jog or something like that. But just something to kind of wake myself up and yeah. Uh, yeah. And then and then in the evening you uh, you get home. I, I suppose you have Evenings kids. Is, it's basically dinner and like family time. Yeah. Cool. Are there any 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 other things you do to to stay? Because you're seven years at Intercom, mm-hmm. uh, 
I, I, I imagine for you as well, it must be a sort of drain on your body. How do you, how do you keep managing that? Uh, I guess, I mean, like the first few years were definitely a drain and they were probably the ones where like you kind of, you don't realize it at the time, but I think you sacrifice yourself more physically than you, uh, than you would at first realize. Um, just because the reality is, I think a lot of people, um, have kind of created a movement against this idea, but I, I really believe that like hard work actually is necessary to start a startup. Mm-hmm. It's not necessary. I think once you're past a certain stage where you have traction and you're kind of up and running, I think at that point you need to start thinking about the longer term as in like, how can I design an, an organization and a role where I'll be happy to spend the next 10 years of my life or 20 years of my life in it. But I think in the early days, honestly, there's a weird thing that's gone on in the tech industry where like hard work has gotten somehow a bad rap of late um, where people are saying like, you know, like I, I will readily admit I worked eight, 10, 12 hour days all the time in like 2011, 2012, 2013. And I think all of the founders did. uh, And, and like, that was what it took. That was just, I, I can't imagine a world where we weren't doing it. If I had to get up at 4 a.m. to do a seminar for two customers in India, I would do it. Mm-hmm. And they would sign up and they'd pay. And then people, the same people who, who say like, why do, you know, surely you don't have to work so hard. They're also wanting me to appear in their podcast saying, how do I get my first 100 customers? And I'm like, you have to yeah. fucking work. You know, um, so I think, uh, you know, there was genuinely a period and I, I don't, I don't want to sound like I regret it, but like there was a period where we had to work really, really, really hard. And as a result, a lot of things fell by the wayside to make that happen. I was traveling all the time to either be in San Francisco or to like go to events and let people know what intercom was and talk about intercom anywhere they would let me. Um, and, uh, and I think, uh, all of that was necessary. And yet at the same time I did like, you know, my, my own health probably suffered a bit during that period. I, definitely mm-hmm. wasn't as fit as I could have been. I definitely wasn't eating as well as I could have been or whatever. I've certainly clawed all of that back and I feel like I'm, I'm, a, I'm like, I'm very happy where I'm at right now. But I think your point about like, um, about like, you know, health or how do you keep it? I think it's important. It's just, I don't like, I don't think that can be something you honestly, that you can, uh, you should obsess about on like day mm-hmm. one of your company because no. the chances are like most startups fail. Most of them just fail. So like, I think optimizing for a perfect work day, work-life balance from uh, from day zero or day one, I think you might be like solving the wrong problem first, if you know mm-hmm. what I mean. I think it's more important yeah. like have have a, have a bit, have a company that needs you and then work out what you're willing to give it. But to have a company that needs you, you need to like kind of work out, you know, you need to like basically learn uh, what are all the various things that need doing, do them all, understand them all, and then get them all up and running. And, uh, and I think if you talk to any folks who've uh who've had like similar like trajectory types of success if you want to call it that to intercom i think they'll say similar i i say all this and i totally acknowledge that at the same time there's also a world where you take the whole thing a lot slower and you achieve you know maybe similar outcomes uh, or maybe like maybe like an order of magnitude less outcome but you achieve it over like five ten years uh um, and that's like kind of the, the long, slow ramp. And I think you can do that. And I think that, you know, that, that's a valid approach too. It's just, I think, um, you need to pick one of those two lanes. Are you happy to make a millionaire or over the next seven years, or do you want to make it in the first two years? If you know what I mean? Like, it's like, these are the sort of trade-offs you need to make in terms of what sort of growth trajectory do you want for your company? Um, and that, that has implications for like, should you raise money or not? If so, how much should you raise? What, what, what sort of people should you hire? All that sort of stuff. Um, I think like 
the there's a lot to think about in terms of the type of company you want to set up early on. And, uh, and my advice there is just really like, know that like hard work is going to help you in either case. But for sure, if from uh, if you're planning to like to for things to blow up quickly, you need to really put the errors in. And, and I've yet to see anyone who's really avoided that. Yeah, but spending I think you mentioned ten hours a day uh, for the trajectory you guys took is not too bad. I think you, your trajectory was uh, from zero to one to five to twenty to fifty million. Correct. That, like you're. Yeah. That's correct. Yeah. I mean, and, and, and like, and I'm probably underselling it at times. Like when I say like 10 hours a day, I guess what I mean is like in the office hours, I'm not counting the hours where I was in shitty airports or hotel rooms, like away from my family and friends and stuff like that. Like I, I know, like I could, I could make it sound more dramatic if I wanted to. But yeah. you're like, you're right. Like, I mean, I would, I would say, I think it was a good piece of business that we did to agree to work that hard for that period of time. Yeah. When about when is it just for the listeners when you made the switch uh, between uh, putting a lot of time in and and taking a step back and and focusing a bit back on your health? I think it's um it's when you realize that the raw momentum of the business is sufficient to maintain uh, like you know the business like if we all don't show up to work tomorrow people still sign up for intercom and yeah. and you know and they still get customer support and you know they're still clicking on our ads and stuff like that um i think that's when you realize like that you can afford to take a step back and you can afford to hire in senior people who will own substantial parts of the concerns of the business and uh, i think when you get there, you, you then need to start like, there's a moment when you realize, you know what, the company is going to be around next year. Like yeah. when you start off, honestly, you, your first week and you're probably the same with Salesflare. Like when you start in your first month, you don't know if you're going to have a second month, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and for us, it was no different. And in our first year, we damn sure didn't presume that there would be two years of intercom. We thought that at best there might be one year of intercom. You know, it was never like this sort of, you know, this guaranteed win. I think now we can afford to think slightly long-term. And because of that, you start to think of yourself slightly long-term as well. And you think, well, I was 30 when we started Intercom. If I'm still going to be in Intercom when I'm 45, when I'm 50, when I'm 55, what has to, what will support that and what will make that hard? And then you realize, right, well, what would make that hard is if I still have to work just as hard as I did when I was 30, uh, when I'm 40, like as in the same number of hours per week then I wonder, well, Jesus, will I really have time to have a life, to have a family, to do all that sort of stuff? So you start to sort of realize that if the right thing for the company is to have you, then it needs to, you know, you need to sort of prioritize both you and the company. And mm-hmm. and it doesn't work if it doesn't work for both of you. So, yeah. uh, so that means like hiring people in to help. It means hiring people in to lead functions you don't know what you're doing with. It means uh, getting the right people around you, et cetera. And then, uh, and then I think you have a chance, you know? Yeah. Cool. Slowly wrapping up, um, what's the, the latest good book you've read and, and why did you choose to read it? You know, these days I'm reading through Blinkist a lot and I have to say um, it's, it's incredible how, how like... Uh, it's the book summaries, right? Hello, can you hear me? Yeah, it's the book summaries, right? Yeah, it's the book summaries, exactly. And like, because I read a lot of business books anyway, but I think mm-hmm. like, uh, like most people I know who read business books, you read the first six chapters, you kind of get the main idea, and then the following eight chapters generally tend to be just case studies or like re- repetition of the same points. Yeah. And, uh, and I think Blinkist is wonderful because it kind of skips through all that. Like it's almost, it, it, it doesn't lose you anything on the sort of the key ideas contained within the book. 
Mm-hmm. But uh, it, it spares you of a lot of the hundreds of pages of, uh, of like, frankly, like filler that like that the book industry for some reason feels the need to push for. Yeah. Um, so I, so as a result, I haven't actually read many like uh, many sharp business books um, all, over the last while, but I've read a dozens true Blinkist. Mm-hmm. The, probably the most recent one I read uh, um, is, uh, I think it's by a guy called, uh, um, the book's called, I think, Sources of power, or something like that. Um, Done, maybe, or um, let me think. Um, no, I'm totally getting the name wrong here. Uh, it's by a guy called. Uh, no, I'm actually. I'm, I'm, I'm even getting the title wrong. Um, let me let me try one quick Google and see if I can get it. Yeah. Uh, I can't find it easily. Um, I know exactly. Oh, actually, let me just think. It was basically, a, it's a business analytics book about, uh, sorry, a business analysis book about the sources of how businesses gain power. Ah, okay. Um, uh, cool. Let me see if I can find, I know, I know who recommended it to me and I, I might be able to find it that way. It's by a guy called uh, Hamilton Helmer. And... Mm-hmm. It's called the Seven Powers, the seven so the powers. foundations of business strategy, uh, and that's probably the last book that I read cover to cover that was um, that was like businessy and quite good. I read a lot of like for what it's worth crime fiction, independent of this entire category that I enjoy, but that's mostly just stuff to do on holidays. Yeah, and why did you choose to read this book uh, about about the seven uh, sources of power for business? Because uh, two of my friends, whose opinions I value a lot, uh, had both said it was a pretty strong book and they both recommended it to me because it it uses a lot of like business frameworks for like sort of analyzing problems and analyzing like uh, dynamics in the market landscape mm-hmm. and um and they were right basically as i read through it i was like shit this is really good so yeah. uh, so that, that's why i read it cool finally uh if you were to start over with intercom what would you have done differently um I think, you know, if I was to start over knowing what I know now, I think there's a lot of like early mistakes that uh, that we would we just wouldn't have to make. But I think a lot of it, you know, there like the mistakes tend to be like tend to be tactical, but mm-hmm. I guess, you know, the the best way I'd, I'd explain it is like I think we were very strong on product at the very start. And I think every other function uh are we made many mistakes. And I guess if there was a kind of a general point, um, I think maybe uh, I certainly, from from my own part, I could have, I could have like learned to understand more about what goes into every other business function, be it sales, finance, analytics, marketing, customer support, you name it. Everything that's not product basically is something where I think I, at the very least, made mistakes early on. And um, and maybe through talking to people, through learning more about how other companies succeeded, through uh, working with mentors, or just you know I don't know reading more books or whatever, I think I could have learned a bit more early on, which would have helped us maybe make uh, the right hires early on, or maybe choose the right tactics early on. And I think um, I think I don't know the the point I'd always say to people like the 
Because like other than saying, rather than saying, oh, don't ruin this advertising campaign, like that's not very reusable as a lesson. I think mm-hmm. the lesson I sort of say is like, you're probably really good at something if you have a successful business. Um, but w- almost without exception, that means you're probably, there's a few areas where you're probably going to be a bit weak and you don't necessarily know what you're doing. Don't use the confidence of your strength in one area to assume you're going to be really good at all areas. Yeah. And because of that, be open to the idea that you might need to learn a lot about something before you even try it. So if you're a product team looking to set up a marketing team or a sales team or a support team or a customer success team, there are people out there who are quite good at this stuff. You should try and meet them, learn from them, understand what makes them tick, learn how to spot a good person from a bad person, learn how to spot a good team from a bad team. And, uh, and only then should you really go deep on trying to make this new initiative work rather than kind of going out at the other side and kind of being opportunistic or like, uh, or assuming that there's not a lot to it and you can work it all out yourself. Yeah. You're, so you're saying be more open, talk to others, learn from them. Yeah. Specifically as it relates to, uh, as it relates to areas where you're exploring for the first time. Cool. I hope this, uh, this podcast can bring a bit of that to people. Hopefully so. Yeah. Thanks again, Des, for being on Founder Coffee. Uh, I'll, I'll even send you over a very nice little package of Founder Coffee in the next few weeks. Uh, oh, you're very kind. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you for being on. Take care. Goodbye. That's it for this episode of Founder Coffee. We hope you liked it. Let the world know if you did. Thanks for listening, guys. Thanks for listening, guys.